Good morning, my name is Steve. I'm one of the elders here. Um, I had a dream Friday night, and, I, and I've got to get this off my chest, okay? I had a dream Friday night, and I was preaching this morning, and it was the same congregation, but it was a different building. It was a building in an urban setting. And, um, and I was wearing a suit that I hadn't been able to fit into for at least 35 years. And if, and if that's not enough of a nightmare to start with, and in the words of Dave Barry, I am not making this up. During my first point of the sermon, a staff member of the church who shall remain anonymous gets up over on this side and starts straightening up and dusting the hymnals. In the sight of everybody. And then the same staff member decided to dust the keys of the organ. I told you it wasn't the same building, right? But so the staff members dusting the keys of the organ, you know, like that, during my first sermon. And so at that point, I just had to stop. And I stopped and waited. And then everybody... I didn't know if it was you or different people. It was the same congregation, I guess. Everybody started walking out. <laughs> Just left. And at that point, I woke up feeling thoroughly deflated and thoroughly let down. And on that point, on that note, let's pray, okay? <laughs> Father, we ask for your spirit today we ask for your spirit to open our hearts to your word, open our actions to your word. May we learn from you, may we see Christ, and may we, in the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ has poured out on us, may we do what you have sent us to do. And we ask this in the name of Christ, amen. Well, what about you? Have you ever been let down by somebody? And, and, and not even in a dream, I mean in real life. Have you ever been let down by somebody? Uh, you felt like they were gonna stand with you and they didn't do it? Maybe it was because they were just totally providentially hindered and couldn't do anything about it. Maybe somebody let you down out of weakness. They, they just didn't have the, the moral fortitude to stand with you. Maybe they let you down out of forgetfulness. Uh, maybe they let you down on purpose, and, and when you get to something like that, it almost feels like a betrayal. But have you ever felt let down? Have you ever felt like somebody just didn't stand with me? Maybe a coworker, maybe a spouse, maybe a neighbor. For whatever reason, have you ever felt let down? What we're going to see in this passage from Revelation today is that Jesus stands with his church and he promises to stand by the church and never to let us down. So let's read from uh, Revelation chapter 3 and we're going to read verses 7 through 13. Revelation, obviously the last book of the Bible, not difficult to find. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have a little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Look, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down uh, from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because Jesus has been given all authority, he promises to stand behind his faithful church. That's our big idea for the day. Okay, Because Jesus has been given all authority, he promises to stand be behind his faithful church. Now, uh, let me say a couple things about these letters in Revelation in the times that I've preached uh, here. We've gone through, uh, now this makes six of the seven letters or messages in the book of Revelation. And they have a number of things in common. One thing they have in common is that they generally follow the same pattern. And that pattern is a description of the uh, resurrected Son of Man, a word of commendation for the church, a word of rebuke to the church, commands and warnings to the church, and finally a promise to the one who overcomes or one who conquers. And that is in general the uh, pattern for all of these letters. There are a few exceptions, and, and the letter that we read today has a small exception there, but for the most part, that's the pattern. The other thing you'll want to note about these letters, all seven of them, is that they are all directed to the angel of the church. Every single letter, it says, to the angel of the church. And, and then all of the pronouns, and you wouldn't see this in English because in English, we don't make a distinction between you, one person, and you, several people. Whereas in a lot of languages that are spoken in the world today and in the language in which John wrote, they did make a distinction between you, one person, and you, several people. And all of these letters, all seven of them, are written to you, one person. And so there's a lot of discussion as to who's meant by the angel, and there's really no commonality in interpretations. But they all come out at the same point that in some way, the angel of the church must stand for the church as a body, as a whole, as a corporate unit or entity. And uh, no matter what the interpreter says the angel means, it generally comes out in the long run to mean the church as a whole in some way. So when we read these letters in this letter today, we need to hear it as a body, as a group of people, as a corporate entity. But then, every single one of the letters ends with these words, the one who has ears, 
let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the message to one church is a message to all the churches, and the message to one church is a message for all of the individuals of all the churches. So that might seem a little confusing, but just think of it in terms of this. I have to look at this letter as being written to me, and I also have to look at this letter as being written to us as a group, as a whole. And when we get into this, I'll, uh, I'll see if we can apply that a little bit further. So let's look first of all at the uh, description of the Son of Man. In verse 7, uh, he says, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. First of all, the Son of Man calls himself the Holy One. The resurrected Jesus, the risen and ascended Jesus, calls himself the Holy One. And in the book of Isaiah, 29 times, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is called the Holy One. So here Jesus, as the Son of Man, is saying, I am the Holy One. He also calls himself the true one, which is something that's not found elsewhere, and it kind of fits in with, with John's way of, of uh, coming up with something new every, every now and then. But here we have the Holy One, the one who is the God of Israel, the Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament. But not only that, he is the one, and here's the interesting thing, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. One of the things that John does throughout the book of Revelation is he reaches back into the Old Testament and he draws out a picture or something that happened there and he brings it into the Revelation and he uses it to illustrate his point. And what he's doing here is he's going back to the uh, to this story about Eliakim, uh, uh, the story of which uh, Janice read a little bit earlier. Uh, Eliakim being invested with the key of David. And it said about Eliakim that he opens doors and he shuts doors. Now, what we have here is, is a couple of different images. One image is the image of the monarchy. And, you know, about 250 years ago, our country decided, you know, we're done with monarchs, we're done with kings. No, no more. We, we don't want kings. And in this day and age, almost every other country has followed suit. There aren't many real kings left on earth today. Uh, but we've been without a king for 250 years. And, and without this being made to sound like any kind of political statement, in a way that's, in a way that's unfortunate. Because there's so much in the Bible that talks about God as our king. And because we've totally rejected the idea of king, when we hear about God as king, it's kind of foreign to us. Yeah, well, that's for another time and another place. But no, God is our king. The, the thing about kings, though, is that good kings, even bad ones too, but good kings always got or always had a prime minister or a chief minister, or a first minister, or a viceroy, or a grand vizier, or what do you want to call them? They always had a prime minister who did the actual administrative rule, 
So the king had to reign. He got his prime minister to do the rule. And in the section that we read from Isaiah about Eliakim, we see Eliakim being invested as the prime minister to King Hezekiah. And, and Eliakim is given the administrative rule of the kingdom. He shuts doors, he opens doors. He makes things happen, he keeps things from happening. And if you're a history buff, you, you, you might kind of recognize this idea. For example, um, you might be familiar with the a, with a name Thomas a Becket. Well, what was he famous for? Well, because he was the prime minister to King Henry II of England. Or Cardinal Richelieu. I mean, if you've done any reading or watching films about the, the Three Musketeers, there's this evil Cardinal Richelieu. He probably wasn't as bad as in the movies, but anyway, Cardinal Richelieu was the prime minister to Louis XIII of France. Um, or you may have heard of Thomas Wolsey or Thomas Cromwell, both prime ministers to Henry VIII of England. And so kings had these prime ministers who would carry out their rule for them. And so the picture we have, and it's an illustration, it's a picture, is that Jesus, like Eliakim, Jesus, upon his resurrection, he was invested with being the prime minister over God's creation. God the Father was the king of all, but he gave the rule, he gave the authority to Jesus. And that's the picture that we have here of Jesus being the Son of Man, the one who has all authority and who has all power given to him by God. So that kind of moves us into the uh, commendation here, the commendation to the church. And he says, I know your works. And here, here's what he has to say. You have a little power, you've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Now, you might think that, that, that the one sentence, you have a little power, you might think that that is actually a rebuke to them. It's not. They were a small church. They were a persecuted church. They were in enemy territory. And he is, and the Son of Man is saying to the church, you do have a little power. You do have a bit of the Holy Spirit working in you. But then, but then, he throws in this phrase. And look at it there in verse, uh, verse 8. I know your works. Look, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So he takes that imagery of the opening doors and shutting doors from Eliakim and he changes it just a little bit because throughout the New Testament, the idea of an open door is an is an open door for ministry. It's an opportunity for ministry. And what he is saying to his church is this. You have a little power. You have ability. You have the spirit with you. And I am going to give you the opportunity for ministry. And I stand behind what it is you do. Now, there, because Jesus has been given all authority, he promises to stand behind his faithful church. That's the big idea. And the first way that he says he stands behind his open church, his faithful church, is this right here. 
is that he gives opportunities for ministry and implies in that that he will give the results. And this is nothing more than simply a restatement of the Great Commission. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission that we read before? Jesus says, all authority is given to me on heaven and earth. So you make disciples, and what? I will be with you even to the end of the age. Now, we had something great happen this morning. We had a great big stack of bulletins out on the table here. And I hope everybody was able to get a stack of bulletins. for. So whoever made that happen, thank you very much. In your bulletin this morning, there is a quote from uh, Jack Miller's book, Outgrowing the Ingrow Church. You don't need to read it now, but I would encourage you to read what he has to say about the Great Commission and about the power behind the Great Commission. But Jesus stands behind his faithful church in providing opportunities for ministry and for making those ministries effective. You know, here at CPC, we've been going through uh, a vision uh, exercise, and we've had a vision team working on updating our vision. And, and the vision team soon will bring to us some action steps. And as a church, as a body, as a corporate unit, we can take these action steps and put them into practice and carry them out, and we can be confident that our God will stand behind us and he will, as our initial reading this morning said, he will establish the work of our hands. We can count on that because all authority has been given to Christ. All authority has been given to the risen and exalted one. And he will stand behind the power that he gives us. And what he says is, I've given you an opportunity. Walk through the door. He, he says to us, you may have, yes, just a little power, but you have some. Use the opportunities that I give you. Walk through that door and see what I do. So you might be thinking, as individuals, um, you know, I just wish we had more outreach. Well, you know what? Go talk to your neighbor. Just talk. See what happens. You might think, you know, we need to give aid. I'd, I'd like to be able to give aid to the poor. Well, you know what? There are more opportunities in Clarksville than you can shake a stick at to help uh, with, help with the poor. You might say, you know, I'd really love to have somebody mentor me. Well, what you can do is say, find somebody that you, you kind of have a connection with and say, would you get together with me for prayer? And you know what happens? You start mentoring each other, okay, which is a good thing. It's a very good thing. You might be thinking to yourself, I, I, wish, I wish there were more of a heart for, for students in our, in our, in our community, in our, in our congregation. Well, why don't you just invite a few over for pizza one night and see what happens? You see, he sets before us open doors and he says, walk through them. I'm giving you these opportunities. You have a little power, use it because you are a faithful church. And, and that's what he says to them. He says in, in verse um, you have kept my word and you've not denied my name. So there's three parts to his commendation. 
you do have power. You've kept my word. You did not deny my name. And it's that kind of church that he gives his promise to that he will stand behind the work that we do. Now, those words, you've kept my word and did not deny my name, they kind of lead us into the next part. Normally, it's a rebuke to the church, but instead, for the church at Philadelphia, he gives a reassurance. And he says to this church, I'm going to make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews but are not, and they lied, they're going to come and bow down before you. Now, before you think that this is an anti-Semitic rant on the part of John, just remember that John is a Jew. John was Jewish. So he's not giving an anti-Semitic rant. He is giving a rebuke, or he's delivering Christ's rebuke to those who are of the Jewish nation who reject him. He's giving a rebuke to those who are anti-Christ. It's not anti-Semitic on John's part. He's rebuking those who are anti-Christ. And it's important to, to see some of the historical background here. Um, the Jews had been given freedom of religion by the Romans. Uh, out of all of the different nations on earth, only the Jews who were conquered by the Romans, only the Jews were given freedom of religion because Rome came to see after a while that, that to try to force any other religion on the Jews meant nothing but trouble for them, it meant nothing but rioting and all kinds of, uh, of uh, political shenanigans that they just didn't want to put up with. So they gave to the Jews religious freedom to worship as they wanted. Well, when Christ came along and he established his church, and the early Christians, where did they, where did they begin? Well, they, they began by meeting in the synagogues. Okay, they, they started out by being part of the synagogues. And as you read through uh, the, the travels of Paul, he would go from synagogue to synagogue. And that's where he would start. He would start with the Jews in the synagogue. And so in the eyes of the Romans, there was no difference between the two. And so, for example, when Paul was in Corinth and Paul was dragged before the proconsul uh, Gallio, he said, listen, this is just an argument over words of, of your religion. And he didn't make a distinction between Jews and Christians. And when Paul appeared before the governor um, Festus, Festus heard him and then he said, I need help with this. And he went to King Agrippa and he says, listen, I need help with this situation. They're just these people, these Jewish people, they're arguing about a guy named Jesus. And again, in the mind of Festus, just like in the mind of Gallio, there's no difference between the Jews and the Christians. However, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, were anxious to make that distinction. And they kept on saying, they're not one of us. They're not part of us. They kicked them out. In a lot of places, uh, persecution against the Christians came at the hands of unbelieving Jews. And so it's at this point where we understand the words, you have kept my word, you have not denied my name. And that was the 
church at Philadelphia in response to what the Jewish synagogue was doing to them. They didn't deny Christ. They kept his word. And yet they, they kept getting pushed out. And kind of as a historical note, at some point, Rome did say, you know what? These are different religions. And that's when persecution of the Christians uh, uh, began. Now, we said that the big idea uh, today is that because Jesus has been given all authority, he promises to stand behind his faithful church. And here's the second way in which he will stand behind his faithful church. And it's probably, it's probably eschatological. Now, you'll forgive me for using a big word like that, but every time a preacher gets up, he's got to use at least one big word to, you know, to, <laughs> to justify the seminary degree, right? So eschatological simply means it happens toward the end of time, all right? And what's going to happen in the end is that Christ will come and he will make a distinction. He will make a very visible, a very plain, a very clear distinction between those who are his and those who are not his. And he will say to the Christians who followed him, you are the true Israel. You are the true Jews. You are the true people of God. And he will show to the world at some point that he's put his love upon the church, upon those who follow him. And that's what we read there in verse, uh, verse 9. They will come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And you've kept my word. And then he says, not only will I show that I love you as opposed to the others, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, in the book of Revelation, that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, it's a technical phrase for those who are against Christ. It's a technical phrase for those who don't follow Christ, those who dwell upon the earth. That's what John means in Revelation. And he talks about an hour of trial coming upon them. And not only will Christ show that he loves his church, but he will keep his people from that hour of trial, that distress, that tribulation that is at the end of time. And now when he says that he's going to keep his church from that hour of trial, it doesn't mean he's going to physically remove them. It, it means more like what he was talking about in John 17, 15. Can we have that slide, AJ? Here's Christ's high priestly prayer. I do not ask that you take them, that is his disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And that language there in John 17 is very, very much like this language in Revelation 3. He says, I will, keep you, I will keep you from that hour of trial. Just like keeping them from the evil one, he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. Just like with the nation of Israel in the land of Egypt, when all of the plagues came on Egypt, Israel was still there, but God kept his people from those plagues by not allowing them to be harmed by them. So he says that their time is coming, 
And I'm going to stand behind you. I'm going to show that I stand behind you by showing that I love you and by keeping you from the distress of that hour that is to come. Now, this leads us into the, the command and the warning. And th this is found in, um, in verse 11. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast to what you have. He doesn't really come out and say as to what you have, but you know, when you stop to think about it, what is it that we have? What is it that they have or had? Well, they had Christ. We have Christ. And he says, hold on to Christ. Hold on to Christ. Nothing else, hold on to Christ. But he also adds to that, so that no one may take your crown. All throughout the book of Revelation, and not just the book of Revelation, but it's through the Bible as well, but especially in the book of Revelation, what we find over and over is a warning against presumption. On the one hand, God wants us to know, our Lord Jesus Christ wants us to know, that he loves his people, and he's going to stand behind them. On the other hand, he doesn't want any, anybody to presume upon calling themselves God's people when they really aren't. God wants us to be assured. He doesn't want us to presume. So he says, hold on so that no one take your crown, so that no one take your reward. And that leads us into the, to the last part, and that is the promise to the one who conquers. And this, these words here, uh, verse 12, uh, the one who conquers, he says, I'll make him a pillar. I'm going to write the names on him. It, it, it all has to do with the writing of the name. Um, can we have the, uh, yes, Second Chronicles 3. And this talks about the building of the temple under Solomon. He says, in the front of the house, he made two pillars, 35 cubits high, with a capital of five cubits on top of each. He made chains like a necklace and put them on the tops of the pillars, and he made a hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. He set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the south, the other on the north. The one on the south he called Jachin, and the other on the north, Boaz. And so we see that the, the, these pillars, and they, they may have been freestanding monuments. They could have been holding up the, port, the roof of the portico. We don't know. But there are these two massive pillars in the temple, and they have names written on them, Jachin and Boaz. We're not really sure what those names mean. It's been suggested that Jachin means that uh, Yahweh will establish and that Boaz means he, uh, he will be strong. But we're not sure. But there were names on these pillars. And John says, I'm going to make the one who overcomes to be a pillar in the house of God. And he'll never, ever, ever leave from it. He'll never go out from it. He'll always be there. And then he talks about writing the name, his name on the person and the name of the father on the person or writing the name of, of the holy city on the person. And what's all this about? Well, you remember we're having a fellowship lunch today, right? 
So everybody's going to come to the fellowship lunch. After we're done, just right down the hall there. But if you brought a casserole or some other dish today to the lunch, there's a good chance that you wrote your name on the dish, right? Or on the piece of Tupperware. Because you want to take it home with you, right? You don't want Stephen taking it home. <laughs> you want to take it home yourself. And you, know, you write your name on things in order to mark them off as your possession. And so whether it's the, name, uh, the names that are written on the pillars or the, the name of Christ or the name of the Father or the name of the Holy City, the whole idea is that he is going to mark off on us his name. He is going to put his name upon us. And that's the third way in which uh, the Son of Man promises to stand behind his faithful church is by putting his name on us. How does he do that? He doesn't really say how that happens. But I think this is the way it works, is that he gives to those who belong to him this inner assurance, this inner conviction, this inner knowledge, this inner confidence that I belong to Jesus. And I think that's the way he writes his name upon us is by giving us that sure, certain, firm conviction that we know and that nobody else knows for sure. So God promises, or, or the Son of Man promises to stand behind his faithful church by giving us opportunities for ministry and implying that he will give the results by in the end showing us his love and keeping us from trial and by putting his name on us. So let's just wrap up. Christ is set before you. Christ is set before us an open door. What are you going to do? What's the opportunity that you're going to take advantage of today or tomorrow or this week? What's the door that you're going to walk through, the door of ministry that you're going to walk through in order to see the risen and exalted Lord work out his will? And then just to bring things full circle, what are you going to do about that person who let you down? Hmm? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to forgive that person just as Christ is forgiving you for letting other people down. Because we remember that only the Son of Man is one who will never let us down. He's the only one who will never let us down. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you stand behind us. We thank you that when we cling to you, we find out that really it's you clinging to us. May we cling to you as hard as we can. May we take advantage of those, advantage, uh, of those opportunities that you've given to us. And we ask for the sake of Christ. Amen.